How you doing, everyone? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Ready to Record from Blue Girl Studios, proudly sponsored by VFX Unleashed, powered by Amarillo College and SimCorp Productions. My name is Daniel the D3 Cohen, I'm your host, and I'm speaking to you from Blue Girl Productions' worldwide headquarters and studios here in my garage. I'm a 20-year-old aspiring musician, engineer, and producer, and like many of you guys, I make music out of my own home studio. You know, some of today's biggest hitmakers work from home studios, so maybe we can help one of you accomplish your big dreams. Now, before we get into the episode, I want to talk about our sponsor, VFX Unleashed, powered by Amarillo College and SEMCOR Productions. VFX Unleashed is a complete accredited online VFX school where you can learn how to have a career in the visual effects industry in classes taught by industry professionals. There are programs in all major aspects of VFX production and software, including Photoshop, After Effects, Maya, Nuke, Cinema 4D, and many more. Online, fully remote classes start every eight weeks, and a full VFX studio within Amarillo College's Innovation Outpost will open next year, which will have a state-of-the-art soundstage and motion capture studio. You can check out all that VFX Unleashed has to offer and enroll today at vfxunleashed.com. Thank you to VFX Unleashed and SEMCOR for being our very first sponsor. We are proud to have you. Now, let's get into the show. Today on the show, we have drummer Mr. Wally Ingram. In trying to find ways to describe Wally Ingram to all of you, all I could really think of was man, myth, legend. And really, that's no lie. Wally is something of a legend in the recording industry and the music industry in general, having done a lot of work with Sheryl Crow and many others. I mean, when your motto is, when in doubt, just add Wally, I think it speaks for itself. Certainly in my own friend group of people like Dusty Wakeman, Phil Milner, Tree Adams, and many more... Wally is something of... He is quite the legend and a dear friend to all of them. And certainly having so much in common with Wally, it's been a lot of fun to do this conversation with him. So here is my conversation with Mr. Wally Ingram. Enjoy. Or do you just like do you edit this later on? I take it. I I do. I go I go relatively chronologically. You know the welcome podcast, that whole bullshit, and then okay, cool, you know, gotcha. And then and then ask a series of questions. The the thing that I do, you know, like I I stayed up. The the one thing that, there are two things that my father does for me, and then I do everything else. He he books the interviews, and some of them I've done myself, and then he'll gather up some links and some video for me to look at Research. and watch know what you're talking about and then and then after that i spend you know four to six hours on uh on the research so i i was up till four in the morning making sure i had everything prepared and it's not just you know reading research and and, and especially when it's somebody you know that i that i already kind of have a have a grasp on you know like uh like I told you in my email yesterday, I I I I had Adam Hirsch on and 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 uh, you know Phil Milner and all those guys and 
you know, I, di- I didn't have to spend hours and hours and researching them. Yeah. <clears throat> and dusty. Uh, yeah, those are all my pals right there. <laughs> and all it's from my, who I've worked actually with each one of those guys in the last month. That's funny. You know, Bill, I was recorded up at his uh, studio. Um, I, I, I'd seen that. Yeah. That was fun. What, what project was that for? It was for his wife. Oh, that was for Jenny's shit. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Bill and Jenny I've known for a long time because Eric McFadden used to live yep. with them in yep. the city. And I've worked with Eric for many, many years. And that's how I met them. And I've done some recording with Jenny before. And I'm with Bill at the helm. And we're just good friends. So she's working on some new stuff and um, was wanting to maybe do it Wally track style. And then um, it turned out, I said, well, look, I'm coming up to the Bay Area to do a couple of gigs and maybe we could just do it there. Um, and um, and it worked out. So we kind of sl- slid it in between a, a couple of uh, gigs up there, which is great. I got to lay lay eyes on them and be in the same room. And, all that business and Phil's got a really great uh, technique, you know. He's got cool mics, cool, cool environment, and you know, just being there. Have you been to their place? I grew up in that place. Phil's the reason I'm a recording engineer. His... <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Okay, so you so... should be recording this. Uh, I am. So oh, in, good. <laughs> in... All right, so... good. So in 2013, so I, I met them in 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, and my father made this deal with them. Like, I'll do some managing help. How about you give the kid lessons? So, so Jenny gave me uh, some guitar and vocal lessons and tried to get me in writing lessons. But the problem with me and, and like, she, she tried to help me with lyric writing. And it was, it was cool. But the problem mm-hmm. with me in lyric writing is I have my father and I don't, I don't know if you've heard my father's lyrics before, but they're very, very, very different from the way that Jenny writes. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about your dad's lyric writing. Uh, well, he started in, uh, in New York in the eighties in the jam band scene. He, he, he was, okay. he, he was one of those, um, you know, offshoots of the grateful dead, if you want to call it that. Yeah, he was um, in this in the scene with John O'Manson and yep. Blues Travelers, Spin Doctors, and the Hatters. Fire Brothers, the Hatters. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Actually, the dr- <laughs> Tom Kalen, the drummer of the Hatters, was in his band first. Oh, okay. Yeah, and if you know Groove Collective, the acid jazz hip hop thing from the nineties, yeah, you know that name. Yep. Uh, their percussionist, Snappy G slash rapper, was again in my father's band. Like. All these guys kind of started off in 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 my my father's world of Columbia University jam band acid trip thing. <laughs> See, I know your dad um, from his manage. I mean, he was he was full on in management um, and, and music handling un- the music unlimited days or the it uh, was well he was he was managing Jono and before then. 
uh, before then. It, uh, I know he was mother, working with other hips. Okay. Yep. And then, uh, um, you know, I'm not sure exactly when I met him, but I, you know, Blues Traveler and I were really pretty good friends because we were, I was working with Cheryl Crow and we mm -hmm. were all on AM records and we were, you know, we put together for a double bill tour, which just kind of skyrocketed all of us. You know, we're kind of simultaneous um, path to success at that time. And we just, we just killed this, I don't know, two or three month uh, theater tour together, sold out everything and got become great friends. And Blues Traveler ended up hiring me to run the, workshop stage on the horde tour for a couple of years and i know I, i'm not exactly sure when when i met billy but it was somewhere in all that and i used to do gigs with bob sheehan and and um john o'manson mm -hmm. and high plains drifter kind of this combo of a uh, um you know jam band folks together but i'm not exactly sure when i met billy I don't know when he fit into the whole mix, but I knew David Graham, and I know that those guys were. They were. They, they were, were partners, right? Kind of. Well, or, ish. My my father worked for Music worked Unlimited, for Bill, right? Didn't well, he? initially he worked for Music Unlimited, and then. Ish. How how did that work? I think <laughs> in the in the late eighties, after my dad graduated, he worked for David as Music Unlimited. Then his band broke up 89.90. And Bill heard that the band was done. He was elated. He went, come work for me. Okay. Um, and then my oh. father was out here in the spring, by the spring of 90. And then came back to New York the fall of 90 because he wanted to be with his grandmother and was homesick. And then worked for David for that year as Music Unlimited in New York. Uh, and then Bill died and, and David flew out here. And David tasked my father of uh, driving his van out from New York to California. Um, Sounds about right. And uh, he never went back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, that sounds about right. So we've had lots of run-ins, and I'm a big fan. I've yet to play music with your dad, which is something that needs to happen. My dad is not point. really a musician. He's a lyricist, but he's... Okay, because he considers himself... Is he in a band right now? No, he was... Okay. No, I've I've had him actually. I'll send you what he's 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 done some stuff with me. Uh, I'll I'll send you some of that. Um, actually, it's funny. I, uh, uh, Tree Adams' daughter sang on the thing that I'm gonna send you, and he's oh. actually been uh, he's actually been been uh, kind of Josephine. Yeah, Joe Joe sang on Joe sang on my song. Wow, Joe and um, my daughter Lydia are really good friends. They met in Cirque school together doing like, you know, circus arts and uh, a few years ago. And then they are, um, they're really good friends. And matter of fact, they all, 
my daughter joined them in Paris for a week this summer. Nice. It, it was they were kind enough to invite her and Tree and I do a lot of work together and we're in a band now, Dagnastopus. Yeah. We've got a real family connection with those guys and um sounds like you do too. When you're hanging out and and you're interviewing Tree Adams and Billy J Stein both before and after the record talk about you know it, it being 1994 and they're crashing on your father's floor <laughs> you know you, you yeah. know it's a family affair absolutely yeah 94 was a that was a landmark year i'd say i think that was the year that i started playing with Shell crow and um so we were on a you know parallel path kind of and we and Cheryl was really uh you know not she wasn't a pop star yet she was really you know carving her own niche and, and we our band was you know a good fit for you know what would become the jam band scene I mean we were kind of like playing in in clubs mm-hmm and we were a rock band and we were not trying to sound like the album and we were not trying to be a pop band by any means. And we were jamming and it was, you know, it was pretty killer. It was kind of a good fit when they connected us with Blues Traveler. And we, we just, I mean, cause they already had this really great built-in audience and we were kind of just searching for an audience and it just, and then all of a sudden she started getting some airplay and videos started hitting. And then, and then at some point we realized, Oh, we are kind of a, I don't know if it's called pop band, but we are we're definitely popular music at that point. And, you know, having to like pay a little bit more attention to playing songs a little more like the record and, and jumping through all the hoops that you do when you're in part of the promotional machinery. Right. You know, with big record companies and stuff. But, but, um, yeah, so 94, 5, 6, 7, 8, you know, right around then, that was this whole run of the Horde Tour. And, um, you know, the Blues Traveler guys became really good friends of mine. Bob Sheehan was one of my very best friends. And, um, and I actually, oddly enough, met my wife in his house in New Orleans. <laughs> a mutual friend introduced us, and you know, it's that kind of thing. So, um, the the real definition of a family affair. Yeah, absolutely. And when when I when Billy reached out to me and asked me if I would do a podcast with his son, I'm like, wow, uh, sure. I mean, I, I didn't really. I don't, I'd love to hear more about you. Whether or not, I mean, I could probably spend an hour interviewing you about what you're. <laughs> doing <laughs> so i'm playing catch up but um and i then i kind of had a look at who you're interviewing and all these kind of audio recording legends i'm like whoa well i've got my own little slice of the uh recording world going on here but more from uh artist side i guess or drummer drummer percussion role and i do my best to surround myself with great engineers and um technical people when I can get them. And if I can't get them in here, I have some virtual, uh, you know, I've got uh, one 
particular engineer who gets on with me virtually and we actually do sessions that way. Um, I could probably let you do the line of questioning, but I, I will say this, that they have set me up quite nicely with like templates for different um, applications. My, I have a great live room. I have great microphones. We've upgraded every system during the pandemic and, you know, taking PPP money and trying to just get everything. It's what do you do when your job's been kind of taken away? You know, when you can't right. work, you, you just have to you have to do something, survive. I've always wanted to have a great studio and I'd already kind of been you know, putting it together, but it really did give me the focus to, um, to build this thing. And, um, and now really my challenge is going to be learning, you know, really, uh, how to be a engineer as well and how to, how to, how to handle the technology behind it. I've, I've got to go to school. I've got to just sit down and put my time in. I can get around a little bit, but, um, you know, I can also get into trouble real fast. Um, I've, so that's kind of where I'm at. I've been sitting behind a recording desk for nearly a decade, and even I still get into trouble. <laughs> nearly a decade since you were nine years old. Uh, yeah. Uh, Phil sold me. The, how I got into recording was Phil called me one day. I was middle of 2013 11 yeah uh <laughs> and he said i have an old I, i'm i'm upgrading my rig i have an old one i gotta get rid of you want it and, sure how much I went, 400 bucks I, went, hmm. I have that in my back pocket sure <laughs> 11 so we had dinner we Paper had route money right yeah or something <laughs> mm -hmm. Pay cash money i i uh so a couple days later went and uh ate moroccan food with uh him him and jenny at at the house on baker street and nice. uh and he set up the first session on the computer for me and explained the basics of how to get around the computer which i already knew but it, you know i was it was his rig and so he wanted to like make sure i was all well and thoroughly versed in it and uh and i paid him 300 bucks up front and took a rig home that night <laughs> that's cool man i i i can't think of a well a cooler like teacher i mean bill is like such a gearhead and like interesting guy and great musician and i mean he can like takes anything apart and put it back together and fix things and i trust me i know i i apprentice <laughs> I, I apprenticed in his shop i was when I, I i everybody knows me ever since i was like 15 years old as a technician's apprentice why because i was in phil's <laughs> shop i was his apprentice did you ever spend time at hate street uh music over there and i was i was in there almost every day <laughs> Now I I wasn't I I wasn't there when Phil was, but everybody knew that I worked for Phil um, in his little shop in his garage. Um, but Which you know, Eric McFadden lived a few feet away. Yeah, uh, 
I I was in there. I started in there about a year and a half after he moved out of the basement. Oh, after Eric did, yeah, okay. But the the, the funny thing is, even though he moved out of the basement, because you got to remember, I, I, this is the the Delphine years, right? Okay, yeah, maybe, yeah. Let's, let's yeah. So <laughs> Eric had already moved out of the basement because he got a apartment or a room or something with Delphine in L.A. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but, but the funny thing is, even though he didn't live there, quote unquote, anymore, he, I mean, you know, he had a lot of stuff there. Oh, I think God. Gonna go, yeah. Fucking artwork, guitars, guitars, guitars amps, underwear. <laughs> like, like I was hanging out with Phil. We went and got wardrobe, wardrobe. masks. Yeah. Clown stuff. Jimmy's, you know. lots of lots of clown paraphernalia yeah well the thing that that was interesting i I mean the way i met bill and jenny was because i would go pick up eric for gigs and i'm like wow what a cool house man wow these people are incredible that's what great Mm -hmm. and then eric had his little space kind of little dungeon uh hideout in the basement which yep. was kind of worked well for him because he's a day sleeper and i don't even know if there was a window in there i can't remember there was one window and the yeah. paper mache zebra yeah <laughs> yeah there and he had a collection of artwork pretty amazing uh stuff um you know paintings and things he found and collected amazing wardrobe and amazing guitars and you can just imagine what this place it looks like looked like um but it i'm i'm thrilled to, to hear this backstory on you um daniel that phil billy and jenny had their their uh effect on you as a young man and still do obviously yeah it explains a lot about where you've come from and knowing your dad it's like uh, the stage is set. The stage is set here. More or less. But can I tell you the funniest thing that nobody, that, or, or that barely anybody believes? Sure. As a college student, I did not go in for music or anything music industry related. I'm a computer science major. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Your dad, uh, I, you know, maybe, I don't know who influenced you on that, but that's, that's a pretty smart move. I mean, I, I, I actually didn't, uh, I didn't go to school for music either. I went to, I was trying to figure out what, in the end, I probably could have ended up with some kind of a, a minor if, if somebody would able to tally it up like that. I did a ton of music coursework, but I landed in the communication arts school, the University of Wisconsin, Madison. Mm-hmm which was a really great program. And um, normally I, I did a little bit of radio, television, film stuff, but I became passionately interested in what they at the time called a communication specialist program, but it was really communication and human behavior. So it was all, it was kind of thing that was like a perfect prerequisite for being a like a therapist or a, a business um, pre 
like business uh, masters or a lawyer, that kind of thing. So I don't, I'm really not sure how I got there other than looking for courses my freshman year. There wasn't much available and you, you literally had to physically go to different um, buildings on campus, huge campus, 40,000 students. And you had to like take this piece of paper and like run or take your bike across campus to the whatever building you're trying to get in and get, sit, get in a line. And if you're lucky enough to get into that class, they'd stamp your schedule and then you'd move on to the next place. So one, I was able to get in this biggest class on campus in the biggest lecture hall on campus called Communication and Human Behavior. And, um, Tom Arts 150, I think it was, with David Mortensen. And it was a life-changing experience to me. It was like literally, a, like the second week of class was the attempt on Ronald Reagan's life um, by John Hinckley. And um, so the, and the backstory on that, I don't know. It was just kind of crazy. And, and the, the teacher said, pull out a three, he handed out three by five cards and he said, okay, get, write down your, what, what you're thinking about this. Like what's your most powerful thought about your reaction to this? And, and then he ended up writing a book based on kind of that idea. Like all these people saying, you know, like a lot of people had wished that he would have, you know, done the job and actually, you know, killed the president. It was like all this crazy stuff. And anyway, the whole way of documenting uh, um, violent behavior and uh, just interpersonal communication and conflict resolution and all these kind of things I, somehow just appealed to me, oddly enough. So I went I went pretty full into the communication and human behavior world. And meanwhile, I got finally into the black music ensemble with Richard Davis, the great bass player mm -hmm. who ran the, you know, bass program and the black music history program and black music ensembles. And I got into his, when I finally got into his world, my junior year, I went through like five semesters of, of history and or four semesters of history and five semesters of black music ensemble and he became a mentor as did the communication arts professor became a mentor of mine too so i was in really good hands and i think those skills that skill set which i never pursued like in business or you know, i i think i used it all the time in being a, in bands like how to deal with personalities yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, that's that's kind of the thing that I, I've I've heard from a number of people who who didn't decide to pursue music as their, you know, chosen profession or whatever, and that and that they didn't study it, uh, in in school and and didn't didn't have that career path as as their schooling education, is that you know, people still use their degrees in 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 the industry. It's just it. 
most people don't think that they use them directly because they're not directly in the profession that they studied to be in or they're not down that path or whatever. But a lot of people do directly use their degrees, even if they don't think they are. Yeah, I completely forgot about it. And then later on, I would realize, wow, I think I'm using some of the skill set. Conflict resolution. Yeah, when you're the drummer in the band, you're either a guy who creates a lot of conflict and then generally you're really, you know, disposable. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, you're the guy who's like kind of the glue, helps be part of the glue, keep things together. Um, and that's, I've been lucky enough to be that guy for the most part, with probably a few exceptions. <laughs> but um, I think that, yeah, it it's like being, uh, I also loved sports when I was younger and I, I kind of just, I was not cut out to be a professional athlete by any means, but I definitely love sports and love team sports. And I think being on a band is a great, it's kind of like being in a, on a basketball team or, you know, being some kind of a, a, a sports situation. You got to know how to pass the ball. You got to play defense. You got to, you know, you got to know how to score and, you know, your team, you got to, you do the thing together. And, um, I've always liked that analogy with being I, in a band. And I think, you know, I, I know people who have, who've said, that being in a in a band is much like a football team or a baseball team or something like that. But, you know, one of those. But something that I realized is that, you know, it is kind of more like being on a basketball or, or a soccer team in that. Not that you're while you're playing for the audience, you're, you're also kind of if you think about it as a team sport, you're you're playing against the audience in a way you're trying to because they're both the audience and the opposing team in a way if that makes sense, because like if you make a wrong move, they can steal the ball and can get on your offensive. And then you have to musically defend and get them back to enjoying themselves. You know, I've, I've seen a couple of wrong, wrong notes or, or, or a poorly played song, get the, get the audience, you know, in a, in a bad state of mind, you have to kind of get the ball back from, from them or, or, and, and try and change their heart. You know? Well, there's yeah, I I agree, and there's also I guess something to be said about being uh, you know, being a home team or playing playing in a. They talk about playing, you know, when you're a visitor and you're playing in an, at a stadium. That's a tough place to play. Like if you're playing the the Raiders and and you're dealing with the Raiders fans, you know, you're never going to win them over. So you're going to have to try to. You try to win, steal the game, kind of. Um, but different right. different venues are challenging themselves. Whether or not you're like in competition with anybody, it's like, you know, okay, so it's a challenge to go and play. Like the Lakers, you know, you and they should go play in Boston. It's like a challenge to play in a venue that's really boomy, for instance, or has a bad PA system or has a, you know, just not good sight lines or, you know, or you're playing in a club and there's a freaking pole in the middle of the stage or there's things like that. We just have to work with whatever your environment is and get yourself through the gig or like bad monitor system or, or an engineer that's not working out for you or, 
you know, sound issues, things like that, the challenges that go in to doing doing live performances. And, and you need, not only is your team on, on stage with you, your band, but your team is your your engineers, your your crew guys, your drum techs and guitar techs. You know, you break a string. You know, you what do you do? You got to have somebody there to hand you another guitar or change the string quick or, you know, something goes bad. You get a bad, bad chord somewhere in, in line. Or DI is not working. What, you know, it's like, it's a full effort. It's like your trainers and your coaches and all, all that. The people that, I mean, I know almost everybody that's in the industry, you think about that a lot. Audience members, audiences don't always think about that it's it's something that i'm pretty passionate about is trying to be a voice for crew people and um and acknowledge them and i think that in the pandemic i mean they've been affected as much or any as as anybody in you know work-wise for you know even even myself i'm able to like you know somebody sends me a project I can record on it and send it, you know, but if you're, you're a live monitor engineer and that's what you do, or you're a guitar tech or something, you're not, you know, when the gig shut down, you're not working. You're right. simply not working. You're looking for a new career. You know, you're like probably working for Amazon or something like that. Or, you know, I know that, I know some of the venues that are, have, you know, when they began opening up, a lot of them are shutting back down again, but, you know, looking for riggers and um, people that, you know, would union people that would stage hands and uh, lighting people and stuff that have, have actually out of necessity had to move on. So I think that we really need to be aware of that and just, I don't know. I, I'm kind of in a situation right now, Daniel, where I'm a little, I'm trying to pull myself up by the bootstraps again, because I was really excited about the way things were going. And I'd, I don't, I had spent a lot of time getting together a bunch of great jazz fest gigs. We're all lining up and things looked like they were moving forward. And that was a big blow. And when, when jazz fest was canceled and then, and then, and then something like a hurricane Ida comes along and you're just yeah. all of a sudden you're going, damn, you know, who even, you know, at that point you're more worried about your friends and the people of new Orleans. And, and now the people all across, you know, all the areas affected by the hurricane and by the flooding and stuff. It's like, what's really important in life. It's like people are, are fighting for their lives and have no power, you know, and, and, on top of that, the whole, you know, our 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 profession has been kind of wiped out or sidelined for a while. It's just like, oh my god, it's 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 a crazy crazy time. Um, and and we're going on what two years now? It's yep. Really, it's really just about. It's coming up on two years. Yeah, it's crazy, <laughs> and we don't know what's going to happen next. It's, it's going to get better before it gets worse. I mean, it's kind of. Uh, right now, it looks like worse before better, sadly. But I, 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 uh, 
that's why I, uh, partly I'm I'm kind of like, oh wow, I better now again refocus again on recording and what I can do, um, what I what I can do on the home front and um, try to facilitate some cool interactive musical experiences with people even um, from afar. Um, yeah, totally. You know, kind of amazing that we're doing things like this these you know the podcasts and and zoom meetings and all these other kind of um interactions i bet you know a thing or two about high quality interacting through the internet um i know there's been a lot of work kind of recently to try to upgrade the interactability of you know musicians trying to play together if not real time but um, I think it's moving that way a little bit, right? It it's seeming to start to. I, I know I know some people have done. I even saw some friends of mine do a uh, Zoom jam session. I don't know how well it went. Um, I mean, I, I I watched it, but even even so, you know, I'm I'm not sure. That it from from the audience perspective, it seemed okay, but you know, the the I've I've never actually. Uh, talked to the two guys who were jamming via zoom uh and, and you know trying to trying to trying to do the thing well you know like were you playing ahead of the beat and trying to like predict when it was going to be were you playing on the beat was like what what how how are you doing that you know <laughs> Um, I, it's hard to, I guess if you could play some, you know, adjust the kind of music you were doing where you didn't actually have to be locked in completely, that, that would be one way to do it. I don't know how far we are away from that kind of thing happening. I know Bob Weir and his camp over at TRI, they, somebody had told me that you had to be within, I don't know how far, but it was, it was like some kind of a range and you had to have the right technology and and it was possible, but I'm not sure how far that range was. It certainly wasn't like around the world. It was like, I don't, I hate to even speculate, but I feel like it was like 500 miles, which is not that crazy. I mean, you could be in San Francisco and LA if that's what it was. I right. really don't know. Um, if this was a call-in show, I would throw that out there and say, hey, does anybody know about that? Phil would probably know. Phil he Billy, might. Phil Billy might know. You might. Somebody at TRI would certainly know about that. I think it's. Been uh, I'm. I'm curious if our dear friend and colleague Tree Adams would know because he's got the. Uh, he, he's got. He told me about it. He he has, his rig, and then, one of his engineers, like his chief engineer, has a matching rig at his place, and they're linked, so that they can be looking at the same sessions. Um. Well, that, yeah, and Tree, we've been doing some stuff together. Not in real time, though. He sends me files, and then I send them off um, back to him and his, his uh, one of his assistant engineers, and then they kind of reset it up. But we haven't really tried to do something together in real time. My engineers, I've got a couple of different engineers that, can get on my computer via Zoom and just like sh I share my screen with them and they can be in my control room or like looking at the 
kind of handling like it's as if they're in the control room mm-hmm. i'm in the i'm in the drum room and they're actually still able to talk back to me even through the talk back right and kind of run the session i mean it's a little bit glitchy i don't think they're hearing great um my good pal jay vatuk who lives in the east bay now and um he he's a a producer, engineer, musician I've known since college days. Mm-hmm. And he had, he said he had his finger on the pulse of some pretty high um, quality audio kind of zoomy technology. Um, I don't know, it might be similar to this Zencaster thing you're, you're using, but um, I don't know. It, it's just, it's one of those things that's going to be ongoing, I think. Yeah. To get better. Yeah. I but mean, let's face it, we all want to play music live and we want to play for the people and that's and you want to record with people live, you know? It's or in the room if you can. Right. That's, that's optimal. But this is uh this is a um it's a pivot, so to speak. It is. You know, I'm I'm fortunate to have you know, I mean, we're in California, which is right now surging, but I I have a group of people who are who who I can trust, which is which is good, um, and we're all down with the vaccines. And when when booster shots become available to us, um, which actually my little cousin who who's uh, kind of immunocompromised, she she had kidney failure, um, and she was only fourteen when she had kidney failure. But oh my god, uh, and and ended up getting a kidney transplant. But uh, uh she just got a booster shot. Um. So, you know, that Fantastic. I, I see this moving in the right direction, but as soon as the booster shots become available for me and everybody else, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely jumping on the bandwagon. Anyway, um, I, I have a number of people I can trust. And, and, and of course, you know, even though we're all vaccinated, it's still a risk, but at, at this point, there is a number of, the, you know, I, I don't want to take too many risks. I'm, 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 I'm not one to to really love that. Um, yeah, but, I'm. Know. a I mean, on that front, um, I've been I, as soon as I was able to get vaccinated, I I, I went for it. I'm a I, stage four cancer survivor now, coming up on 15 years, head and neck cancer. So I'm. I probably would qualify for a booster. Probably, maybe, maybe sooner than later. I don't know. I haven't haven't really looked looked into that. I probably probably should soon. But um, um, and as soon as my daughter was, she's um fifteen now. But when she was um when it was came available, I can't remember if it was for fourteen year olds or fifteen year olds. But anyways, she wanted to do it. It was kind of her decision. I mean, we were all we were all for it. Um. I have a real hard time unless somebody has some kind of a situation that they are, it's truly a health risk concern. And I do have a friend that had a bad reaction musician friend of mine who has asthma and he had a pretty scary, bad reaction to the first vaccination. And he's very hesitant about completing it. And, um, it's, I think it's really taken a toll. It's like, because he's not vaccinated completely and um he's just it's kind of tearing him up and it's also 
like he can't technically go do a gig that you're that you're need to be fully vaccinated it's just like what um and then there are some people i've heard you know they just they don't want to do it they don't want to do it there's, the sad thing is that these are the people that end up in the hospital you know and then there's kids that are all these kids that are going back to school that can't get vaccinated and there a lot of them are going to get sick and it's just going to be it's i don't know the, the risk factor is significant, as we all know. Yeah, exactly. And it's 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 uh, it's really holding up our industry. I mean, at, at this point, you know, I, I I could I could be the cheerleader. Come on, everybody, get vaccinated, and you know, life life will return to normal, and and I can I can I can be the nice guy. But I, I think I'm I'm starting to take my father's approach. No, you're you're fucking with my industry. You you got to do this right now. I need to make some money. <laughs> yeah, well, I know. I, I just I just played at um, Terrapin Crossroads last Sunday with um, David Nelson Band, and they they were, you know, they were very adamant about having looking at everyone's vax card and, um, yeah, even David, you know, just like David. Around eighty years old, and the, you know, definitely for him. But uh, um, and he didn't have it on him or something, and he but he was able to get get a hold of it. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, no one's getting in there without without it. Um, I think Northern California is really, really seems to have it. Uh, be kind of leading the way. Yeah, the, the venues and. Because right now it seems like that's where the gigs are, and so those people and the audiences um, are respecting it, and they're—that's the protocol. That to me is the way to do it. And the next weekend I'm doing a festival um, with Tom Freund, this Beach Life Festival, and they just asked today, yesterday, to you know email in a copy of your Vax card. And it's a three days with. Tons of bands. I mean, it's it's amazing lineups. It's going to be interesting to see how they manage that. Um, I'm assuming everyone in the audience has to be show that their vax cards, right? I don't know. Same, same, <laughs> yep, same thing. No, I, you know, I just actually, I, I, I had this happen myself. I um, I had a session. It was this. Uh, group of UC San Diego students, my, my, one of my bandmates, he's been in since we were 14, 15 years old in my band. And, uh, he went when he graduated high school to UCSD and he's a couple of years older than me. And so he, he graduated this year and, um, and, uh, a couple of his, one of his classmates from, from his old music class, he, he, he went in for pre-med, basically human physiology and neuroscience was his major. But he he took a lot of music courses, and I nearly got a music minor, I think. Um, uh, and that's a funny story for another day because he almost didn't bring down his uh, his trombone. But he uh, he had a bunch of friends trying to do a session up here, and one one of them was trying to come up, and you know he's a twenty year old kid from the San Diego area, and he was going to come up and produce a session with all these grads slash uh 
uh, uh, current students who lived up here and he wanted to do it at my place and he did it at my place, but we had to, uh, I, I, I had to tell him like, look, you, you, you gotta make sure like you gotta prove vaccination. Otherwise I'm not letting you guys into the studio because I'm not getting sick. And, and more to the point, I'm not getting my parents sick. I'm not getting my immunocompromised cousins sick. Like I, I'm, I'm, I, I see my grandmother twice a month. I'm not getting her sick. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not dealing with that. You have to be vaccinated. Um, and, and of course, everybody, everybody's from California. Everybody, you know, that's, that's the current age old thing. You want to know if somebody's vaccination status, ask who they voted for. Um, so. Right. Pretty much. Yeah. I, but I was, did anybody have a problem with it or were you all no, good? Nobody had a problem. We were all good. We went forward. It was a good session. Actually it lasted 10 hours. Um, <laughs> kid wanted to try and do it in five, but ended up being in 10, um, which was okay. Cause he booked me for a 10 hour session, but he was trying to be ambitious, um, which yeah. I respect. I, I can appreciate that, you know, but uh, be, 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 pre- <laughs> try to do something, but be prepared for when it fails. You know, I get it. Um, um, I, I've got to tell you, it's funny because my a friend of mine, going back to my early, earliest days in Beloit, Wisconsin, where I grew up, there was a kid in my neighborhood. I was about nine. He and his brother were seven and they were adopted and they were adopted to a sociology professor at Beloit College. And we just kind of ran around. I met when we were riding bikes in the neighborhood. As one does. Didn't think that much about these guys. They were, I mean, I loved them. They were friends and they were, we just kind of ran around. And then years years later, I was asked to put together a band for a show at the high school and um, to raise money for the homecoming of events or something. And so I was looking to put together a band and somebody I met, I hooked up with a couple of musicians and I said, man, we, you know, we need a singer. And somebody said, oh, have you ever heard Ron Froze sing? And I'm like, Ron Froze? I mean, he sings? And it was like a kid in my neighborhood, you know? And it's like, <laughs> oh yeah, he's a great singer. I'm like, oh, wow. I think he was 13 at the time and I was 15. And we... He he can't. He's an amazing singer. He sings. He could sing like all the rock stuff, all the pop stuff, soulful, um, just really soulful singer. Almost in like Stevie Wonder kind of category. But uh, at any rate, he's he and I have done tons of things throughout our lives, and he is very into the audio world and is coming over here. In about 45 minutes, he will be arriving, and we're going to be working on some presets for his new, well, not so new, but for his one of his plugins. His name is, is he took his dad's first name, Menno, Menno Froze, and his company is called Ayaic, A-Y-A-I-C, is that it? A- A-Y-A-I- have to, we have to they, look it don't up. they make the mix monolith exactly you heard yeah. of it yes yeah the mix monolith and the cos ceilings of sound matter of fact i think it's the mix monolith 
we're going to do a Wally Tracks presets based on my Wally Tracks um, percussion drum library that's on Yurt Rock. And so he's he's going to be over here in about eh, probably about an hour. And um, I told him about you yesterday that um, we we're scheduling time for him to come. I said, oh, maybe maybe Daniel would like to should speak with you sometime because you know the whole recording arts thing he has just become he's a genius he's really he's got this vision he's seen followed it through he's a great musician but he's really taking on taking on this technology and um he's got like big plans to do some i don't know something like he says 15 more plugins and he's got it all mapped out what he wants to do next and he wants to do a drum machine and whatnot but we have had we've had the dream together of being in music since we were teenagers and we're you know i'm almost 60 years old and he's like in his mid 50s and we're still doing it and we're still supportive of each other and that's kind of what it's all about. I mean, when you get people like that in your life, like Jay Vatuk as well. Jay was in, in our band, Electro Love Kit, together in, um, in college. And then Jay and I moved to California around the same time, and we ended up with a studio together. And he produced three of the David Lindley, Wally Ingram duo records, and he did a duo record with Jerry Joseph and I. And um, he's gone on to be, Jay's gone on to be um, production manager at the Belly Up in Aspen. And then he moved on from that to become, uh, work with Michael Fronte, doing his production work, every aspect of it. And he's just, he's just that guy, you know, he's just, and our team, he helped me work on the, the Wally Trex library, along with my engineer, Sid Greenbaum. And um, it's just great when, I mean, you got people like that that you've known since you were, you know, about your age now, for sure. I think I met Jay about when I was maybe 20. And 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 to know that um, a lot of these guys are still doing it and pursuing it is pretty, pretty cool. I, I'm gonna definitely introduce you to a handful of people that are in my camp that I think would be um, interesting to speak with for your um, podcast regarding engineering and music. I've been having a lot of fun sharing this conversation with you, and it has been super duper cool to have Wally on the show. Having his insights and his background, both as a drummer and a producer and a studio musician in general and as a whole, has been really fun to talk to him and talk about all the things that he's done and all the ways to go about being a drummer and producer in today's modern remote recording world. Now, this conversation will pick back up and it will have some really kooky, crazy stuff go on along the way, too. But we have a special break in the action, which is why we've been delayed in releasing this episode. This week, the week of May 30th, 2022, we are headed down 
to NAM 2022, where we will be covering as media and giving you guys an inside look at what is going on and what is new at NAM 2022. There will be a lot of familiar voices and friends of the podcast, as well as some new people and some really cool gear from really cool companies. Now, while there may not be more music to geek out on next time, there will certainly be a lot of gear too. So tune in for all of our NAM 2022 coverage, where we will be going through every bit of pro audio that we can get our hands on and we can talk to. For now, though, this is Daniel the D3 Cohen signing off from Blue Girls Productions Worldwide Headquarters and Studios here in San Francisco, California. We're ready to record.